Now we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. So we're just going to jump right on in there. Kind of got a long way to go and a short time to get there this morning. Want to get through these seven verses because they, they all go together. So let's read them together. They're printed in your outline there. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Now, we continue making our our way through 1 Timothy, verse by verse. This is a letter that Paul wrote to his protege here, Timothy. And if you remember, in chapter 2, we've been discussing, it dealt with the instructions for men and for women as appropriate to worship. Well, today we're kind of wading into the third chapter of 1 Timothy, where Paul's instructions, they'll shift a little bit from discussing the responsibilities of, of men and women toward what we ought to expect from our church leadership. So as you can see, 1 Timothy, it's just, it's just loaded with all kinds of instructions for church people. You know, this is kind of, if you want to know something about the church and how it should function, if you go to 1 Timothy, you'll see how to do that. It's, it's just a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, but this whole section here, even though it's specifically this one deals with the elders of the church, it's really about how God's people should conduct themselves in God's household. In other words, it's something for all of us, not just the elders. Well, <clears throat> most of you have been around long enough. You've visited some other churches. You've been there, and you've discovered that today we have a variety of names for leadership in the church. You've discovered, I'm sure, that the Baptist church, they have deacons. And in the Presbyterian church, they have elders. And the Catholic church has priests in their church. The Episcopalians, you know, they have rectors and, and uh, uh, vicars. And some denominations, they simply refer to their leaders as ministers. Others use the term pastor. Well, regardless of which one, which word that you decide to use in the Bible, there are only two designated leaders, and that's the elders and the deacons. Those are the two that are in the scripture. Well, in this passage here, Paul lays out some requirements or guidelines or attributes or characteristics, if you will, for the um, church elders or overseers. Now, by my count, there are no fewer than 15 qualifications in this passage of, of Scripture right here. But here's something I want to point out before we walk through this. First of all, of the 15 qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, of those 15 qualifications there, 14 of them 
are related to character, and only one of them is related to giftedness. Now, I think that's important to note there. You see, the New Testament, apparently, it places a, a very high premium on the character of leaders in the church. That's something that we need to take note of. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I do believe that it should be obvious to every one of us that character and leadership is hugely important. That's a big deal because it talks so much about it. It was John Maxwell. He said that character makes um, trust possible, and trust is the foundation of leadership. You know, it's true that charisma, you know, it can make a person stand out for a moment, but character is what sets a person apart for a lifetime. And I think you know that that's true. This is why this is so important that we use this passage of Scripture here maybe as a screening for anyone we want in leadership. And let me tell you something. Preachers should be included too. They're not exempt from this either. So what are these qualifications? Or what are these characteristics or these attributes here that we should have? Well, first of all, the qualifications for church leaders. First, the leader must understand the dignity of the office of elder. Um, the leader must understand the dignity of the office of elder. See, if you desire this, you desire a noble task. It says right there in, in the very first verse. And this word is a word that means attractive or beautiful or, or useful or good. You know, the office of elder, wonderful thing. It's an incredibly important thing. It's a good thing. And that first requirement is to recognize the dignity of the role. You see, these men that are elders, they're not just rubber stampers to the minister's whim or the pastor's whim. They're not that at all. These are pastors. These are shepherds here. And the word for overseer is the word episkopos. You know, scope, of course, means sight, and epi means over. So what you got here, oversight or supervisors. That's kind of their role. It's a high calling to be in the leadership of the church. And it's something that we need to understand. This is not a fly-by-night thing. You know, whatever you call them, it seems clear that the health of the church will be directly related to the health of its leaders. You see, this is why this passage right here is so crucially important. You know, I think it's just few of us that need to be convinced of the importance of leadership in life. We all need leaders. You know, the generation principle goes something like this. We are responsible, you and I, we are responsible to a group of elders selected by the Holy Spirit and biblically qualified. But get this, we are all including the elders, accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ, every one of us. Here at Cabin Swamp, we have a group of men, they're called elders, whose job or whose responsibility is to lead this church. And this passage that we read right here is all about the attributes and characteristics of our leaders. This is what they should have. You know, Paul knew, without a shadow of a doubt, he knew that Timothy's success at Ephesus and beyond was largely related to how well he selected and how well he trained the elders 
of the church. Charles Simons, um, he was an Anglican pastor in the late 1700s, and uh, one of his elders wrote a letter to him, and here's what it said. It says, watch continually over your own spirit and do all in love. We must grow downward in humility to soar heavenward. I recommend you having a watchful eye over yourself. For generally speaking, as is the minister, so are the people. Folks, the character of a congregation will greatly be the reflection of the character of the eldership or of the elders. You see, if you have generous, uh, generous elders, you're going to have generous people. If you have stingy elders, you're going to have stingy people in the church there. If you have scared and anxious elders, um, you're going to have a scared and anxious church. If you have gossipy elders, you most definitely will have a gossipy church. If you have servant-hearted elders, you'll have a servant-hearted church. You know, and the spiritual health of the church will never go any further than the spiritual health of the leaders. Heard my dad tell me one time, he said, son, he said, a fountain will never rise any higher than its head. A church will never be any greater than its leadership. You see, you know, the character of leadership matters. It is important. That's the reason it's talked so much about. You know, Paul, he certainly understood this. In 1 Corinthians in chapter 9, in verses 26 and 27, it says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And then on their very first missionary journey, um, Paul and Barnabas in Acts the 14th chapter, verse 23, they appointed elders um, for them in every church with prayer and fasting. They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And then in the letter to Titus, Paul writes this in the first chapter in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remains into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Every town, every church is to have a group of overseers or elders that provides pastoral oversight to the church. And let me tell you something. The importance of this noble task is underlined here. It's undergirded by their selection of elders in every town. It was that important to them. You know, it's a noble calling indeed, but it's also a commendable task here. Let's move along. Secondly, the leader must have a desire to serve. There in verse 1, if anyone aspires, he desires. You know, they must desire it. Now, this is a little bit weird sounding, isn't it? Because don't we normally think that if someone um, is wanting leadership, we should be a little bit skeptical? Well, absolutely, that's true. They need to be vetted. They need to be checked out. But Paul says they should at least desire to serve. You know, there could be someone, and I've known many men, you know, with had all the right attributes and qualities in their life. And I'm thinking, man, they would make great elders. They were smart in the word. They knew the word, but they simply didn't want to. 
So that disqualified them from being one because they did not desire it. You know, Peter urges in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1 and 2, he urges the elders among you as a fellow, as a fellow elder and as a witness to the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. You know, certainly, there ought to be a joy, and there ought to be a willingness to serve in their hearts. Now, the word here is a strong passion. That's what it means. You know, the leader of the church, they must be qualified to serve. And in order to do that, it's going to require something more um, than just an inclination that says, well, I couldn't be a doctor or I couldn't be a lawyer. I couldn't be a mechanic or a plumber or a baker. So I think I'll just be a pastor or an elder. You know, it takes a whole lot more than that. See, that's not the way it works at all. You see, it's a strong inward compulsion that is motivated by a love for God's church. There's, there's a, a strong desire there. Third, the elder must live up to the demands of eldership. The elder must live up to the demands of eldership. Now, let's walk through some of these demands here just for a minute. In verse 2, the overseer must be above reproach. You know, they need to have a good general level of consistency and visible integrity, uh, you, know, that arouse, you know, that arouses no suspicions whatsoever about their character. You know, they need to kind of be like Timothy himself, of whom all brothers spoke well of Timothy. You remember that passage? It was Jeremy um, Rennie in his book, Church Elders, he wrote this. He said, being above reproach means that an elder is to be the kind of man of whom no one suspects of wrongdoing or immorality. People would be shocked to hear this kind, this kind of man charged with such acts. You know, the word here means unable uh, to be held. You know, obviously, this does not mean that a man has never sinned in his life because we know that everyone sinned in their life. But it does mean that the life of, of this church leader is not stained by some blatant and obvious sinful aspect of character, you know, that would exclude him from being an example of, of, of godly character. And that no one in the congregation can point to some obvious issue about this man in their life about which they are unrepentant. You know, that doesn't work either. Now, this part won't cost you any extra, but here's four quick reasons here why pastors and leaders must take great care to remain above reproach. There's, there's something just bearing down on them. Number one, they are special targets of Satan. You know, if you're in leadership of the church, they are special targets of Satan. The second thing is their fall has greater potential for harm. And the third thing is the greater, um, their greater knowledge of truth leads to a greater chastening um, because of sin because they understand what it is. Leaders are going to be judged harder than others. And elders' sins are more hypocritical than others because they preach against the sins that they commit. Um, so, folks, if you're in leadership, I mean, it's a very responsible position. You know, it's something that you need to take very seriously. Now, this is a general command, whereas the following commands here 
They represent ways to be above reproach. Still in verse 2, must be the husband of one wife. Now, our English translators didn't do us any justice when they translated this the way they did. The actual words in the Greek is literally a one-woman man. That's what that phrase is, one-woman man. Now, this does not mean that the man has to be married. You know, the absence of the definite article indicates that this is really more about um, the man's moral and sexual behavior than about his marital status when you look at it that way. Now, there are some married men that only have one wife, but they're not one-woman men. And you probably know some, uh, you know, around. You probably met some of those around. Um, and because of that, divorced men are not excluded from church's leadership necessarily. You know, even though God hates divorce, Jesus permitted remarriage following a divorce when that divorce was caused by adultery. You can see that in the fifth chapter of Matthew, verses 31 through 33, or 32. So just because someone has been divorced, it does not necessarily disqualify them for church leadership. Neither are single men disqualified. Otherwise, Paul would have had to disqualify himself. He was a single man, elder, leader in the church. You know, if a man has had a divorce because of an affair he was involved in, of course he would be disqualified according to this requirement. Now, there have been, over the years, there have been several debates about this verse and what it means. And for an example, here's some of the things that people have come up with. A person who has only had one wife in all of his life, and she's still alive. Another thought, a person who is not a polygamist, although he may have been one in the past. Another, a person who is properly married at present, even though he may have been married, you know, widow or divorced, you know, in the past. Well, the literal translation of the saying, husband of one wife, is a one-woman man. Now, Paul could have said, now think through me with me on this logic. Paul could have said, a man who has never been divorced or a man who has never been widowed in order to eliminate man with this type of marital history from being considered. But he chose this saying instead, one woman man. Now, in my opinion, you heard me, my opinion and some other uh, scholars whom I respect highly, I believe that he was referring to this person's attitude and not his legal status, you know, and I believe that because all the other qualifications here um, he mentions concerning this individual is referring to attitude and character. The term one woman man, therefore, that eliminates polygamists, and it also speaks to his faithfulness as a husband here. You know, in other words, not a flirt, not one who is improperly involved with other women, even if um, he is married to only one here. You know, how a man conducts himself with women who are not his wife would seem to be a more relevant trait um, contributing to the man's work as an elder than whether or not he was remarried or widowed or, or divorced. What I believe is, I believe Paul's point is this, that a church leader 
is to be devoted to the woman he's married to. In other words, there is no other woman in his life but that woman that he's married to. He is solely faithful to that woman. You know, and other women not only respect that about him, but they feel safe when they're around him, especially in situations when his wife's not present. Now, that's my take on, <clears throat> on that. Moving on in verse 2, he must be sober-minded. You know, here the word literally means wineless, and uh, seems to mean literally someone who is extremely reserved in the drinking of alcohol. Metaphorically speaking, though, it means someone who is level-headed. Someone's got their head on straight. Moving along, verse 2, he must be self-controlled and disciplined. Self-control, of course, is a fruit of the Spirit's work in a person's life. The basic idea here is self-mastery here. Elders are to be exemplary in the um, areas of personal discipline, especially regarding practical areas of life like time management and, and um, money management and, and self-regulation. And those men who have self-control are consequently um, respectable to others. They kind of come together there. Also in verse 2, hospitable. You know, it's the next qualification or attribute on the list. Now, here's a Greek word, I'd like to share it, philoxenia. Philo meaning um, love for, and xeno meaning strangers. You know, in these days back here, they didn't have hotels and motels like we have in our current uh, time, like we have today. So, for the traveling Christian, you know, and the preachers back then, they were reliant upon the hospitality of the local elders there. Hospital elder, elders, you know, are those who create a warm, welcoming environment for visitors to the church. And they're often the very first to reach out to new people to get to know them there. Um, because they are involved in the care of souls and the shepherding of a flock. I mean, if you think about, if you see the pictures of shepherds on the hillside and, and the sheep out there, what does that shepherd do? He watches over. He oversees. He helps take care of those sheep. Also in verse 2, he must be able to teach. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, in Titus 1 and verse 9, I think it gives us a little more clarity on this. Paul says this. He says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and able to rebuke those who contradict it. You know, these need to be men who understand the core doctrines of the Christian faith well enough and have the skill to teach others the same thing. Very simply put, we'll boil this down to one sentence here, the basis for these men's leadership is the Word of God, period. It's not the power of his personality. It's not the role that he, you know, is the biggest giver in the church or the biggest tither. It's not even primarily giftedness. These leaders are to be the men of the Word. These are the men who will say, let's see what the Bible says about it. And if you go to any one of the elders, ultimately, they should all say the same thing. Let's see what the Bible says 
It's not their opinion. It's not your opinion. What does the Bible say about this? Moving on, let's go to verse three here. Not a drunkard. You know, alcohol was not completely for, um, forbidden for elders. Jesus himself, he drank wine, he turned water into wine, and he used it as a symbol representing his blood. We think about that every week when we come around the communion table here. But there's something I think that we ought to be, we ought to consider here. Alcohol is a depressant, and it impairs judgment for those who drink it. And elders are leading churches that may even have um, someone who's struggling with alcohol addiction. And leading by example sometimes means foregoing our freedoms in Christ for the sake of others. You know, when we take on that role of leadership, sometimes, you know, we have to step up even more. Also in verse 3, must not be violent, but gentle and not quarrelsome. You know, violent or quarrelsome elders, they're not fun to deal with. You know, they're not fun to work with. You know, elders that are always looking for confrontation, you know, they're hard to have unity with. But elders that are gentle, who will speak the truth in love, but do it in a way that honors the relationship, man, they're a breath of fresh air. It's, it's a pleasure working with men like that. Someone said that the qualifications of a pastor, he must have the mind of a scholar, the heart of a child, and the height of a rhinoceros. <laughs> I think that might be true sometimes. Let me tell you, stepping into church leadership is stepping into a place where you're going to get criticized. And you're going to be criticized a lot. It just seems like for some reason that everybody thinks they're an expert on the church and that they have a better way. And some of them think that they have a better way than God. You know, and you're going to be criticized for it. And if elder is quarrelsome, you know, they're going to be combative with those who criticize them. And it certainly will affect the unity of the church. I've seen that happen over and over again. Moving along. There's no room for greed in the church leadership. Church leaders should not be a lover of money. You know, and later Paul E. addresses this again when he says the love of money is the root of all evil in the sixth chapter of 1 Timothy. Someone was talking, two folks were talking together, and he says, hey, do you know Frank? And he says, oh, yeah, 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 I know Frank. I see him, you know, every week at the bar. He talks about how much money he's making. He talks about how many girlfriends he's got on the side. He talks about how rebellious his kids are. And the person says, well, you know, Frank's an elder in our church. And I'm like, what? You know, the general principle here, the point I'm trying to make is that it shouldn't. we shouldn't be surprised when people say that they're elders. In other words, elders should live their lives in such a way that if we find out that they're elders, we're not surprised at all because their life shows it. Their walk matches their talk. I'll tell you something, an elder's life, it must not be controlled by alcohol or, or, or money. Um, here, fourth, let's move along. Verse four and five. The church leader must direct his own family well. Must direct his own family well. Now, this does not mean that you go into his house and he has perfect kids 
and he has a perfect wife, and he has a perfect yard. People like that are just kind of perfectly annoying, aren't they? And sometimes that person. <laughs> but he's a normal guy with an extraordinary calling. You know, if he can exercise good leadership in his own home, then he's qualified to do it in God's church. But if he can't do it in his own home, how can he do it in a larger home like the church? He just cannot. You know, if you're faithful with a little, you'll be faithful with a lot. And that makes perfect sense. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to beat your kids into submission because if, you, if you're that kind of parent, if you're that kind of person, you do that, you'll turn them into clones or you'll turn them into slaves, certainly not a family. And Paul's not trying to turn this into a law here, by no means. He's simply arguing the principles. You know, in the home, there should be sobriety, sensible nurturing, and certainly encouragement. Verse 6, number 5, or, or the fifth uh, the church leader must not be a new Christian. Let me ask you this. Have you, have you ever known someone who was promoted too quickly? And some probably have. You know, they were given a title or a position right out of, out of college, overseeing men that had been doing that job for years. Well, as a rule of thumb here, either they get arrogant or they lag behind in competence. And either one is a problem. One pastor said it this way. He said, when you thrust new converts into leadership, they blow up in conceit and they blow out in usefulness. Um, sixth thing, church leader must be distinct among non-Christians. Verse seven here, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. You know, the general idea here is that if you mention that person's name, you know, out in their jobs or in their families or in their homes at the grocery store or to their neighbors, it ought to be no surprise whatsoever to them that he's an elder in your church. In other words, he should have that kind of life. When somebody points an elder and says, yeah, that's an elder in their church, it's like, oh, okay, I understand. Because they know of his character. You know, they're distinct among non-Christians. Um, not because that everybody understands the doctrine of the church or even what an eldership is supposed to be, but they know there that Mr. Wright is an honest man. He's a kind man. He's a wise man. He's a respectable man. They just know this stuff. Well, very briefly, that was kind of the whirlwind view here of, of the qualifications or guidelines or attributes characteristics of elders, I want to share with you three temptations real quick for church leaders. And I think that they should, for every leader, pastors, elders, preachers, um, and these are kind of occupational hazards for the job, to something to think about here. The first is the temptation to shine, temptation to shine. There are some people, and I've known in the past they wanted to be an elder because they just wanted the power. They wanted the attention. You know, maybe that for whatever reason, they're not getting that attention at home or at work, so they um, think that the church is a place for them to shine, and that's why they want it. Well, as a church, folks, we need to be on watch for that false motivation right there, and we need to constantly keep it in check 
in our lives as well. The second temptation is the temptation to recline. You know, church leadership um, is often a role where there's no, no real direct oversight. You know, there's a lot of freedom with your schedule to be relational with people and in the congregation. You know, and it's tempting to have the privilege of eldership or church leadership and just be lazy with it. It's tempting to do that. But I want to say this, um, our elders are very diligent with their responsibility. I've told them this and I've told you this. I've been in many, many churches. There's the finest group of men of elders in this church as any I've ever served. And I want you to understand that. You know, for those people that's entrusted with the privilege of getting up in the morning without a corporate job, without a boss looking right over their shoulder all the time, we need to remember that this is a calling and the church needs our very best. You know, we need to resist the temptation to be lazy. And the last thing is um, we have a temptation to whine sometimes. You know, the last occupational hazard with people in church leadership is to think, I'm the only one. I'm the only preacher in the whole world. I'm the only elder in the whole world. I'm the only deacon in the whole world. Nobody knows the trouble that I'm in. You know, no one knows how much criticism that I have to take, that I have to put up with. You know, everyone else, they get up, they go to work, they come home, and all their problems are gone. Well, I have to deal with church folks for that. You know, you know, for elders, it's a temptation sometimes to complain. But, you know, the Bible says do everything without complaining. You know, sadly, not here, and I'll say that, but I have been in churches where some of the church, the church's elders' meetings, it was just a complaining gripe session about how the church was going. Let me tell you something. The elders should be the greatest encouragement to the pastor and to the general congregation as they can be, you know, and they should resist the temptation to whine. I'm very grateful for the elders we have in this church. They live this passage and they work well as a team. But let me tell you something, and I'm not saying anything <clears throat> that they don't know. Every year they get a year older. Folks, we need other leadership to come along and take those places. We need to grow up leadership. That's why it's important to look at passages like this so that our young men will understand what they need to do, what they need to step into. And our, our older men and elders, they can groom and nurture and mentor these people. You know, I hope, you know, by this preaching this message, maybe someone listening to this you know, maybe God will place a desire to lead and serve in his church. Folks, the church needs to continue. It needs to go on, but we need to do it in the right way. Do it the biblical way, the scriptural way, so that there will always be a God's church right here. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for the instructions that you give us Father, help us to understand how to interpret these verses. Um, help us to understand the true meaning of them and help us to live by that. And uh, Father, we just love you. We praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.